Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us again in the book of Isaiah, today chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6. Perhaps for some, the most famous chapter in all of Isaiah is this chapter that we read today, chapter 6. It is the record of Isaiah's vision of the Lord, and it is significant for us on many levels, and we will consider it joyfully. You'll recall a week ago announced that we would study the book of Isaiah for seven Sundays. We will obviously be selective. We will be jumping over large portions of Isaiah. But uh, these first two or three weeks, we will be laying a foundation and staying in these first few chapters. The book is 66 chapters, so it is a long book. But uh, it really addresses two different periods of time. The first 39 chapters uh, are all about God's problem with his people. And then chapter 40 and following are all about God's reclaiming of his people, or if you will, restoration of his people. And so there's great joy in the book of Isaiah that we shall see and hear again and again as we read. And today we find uh, both of those themes explored together in chapter 6. So we're going to read a few verses and uh, not uh, camp out too long on any of them, but we shall, I hope, uh, bring some enriching thought and I trust provoke worship. May the Lord give us grace to do so. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe! is me for i am lost for i am a man of unclean lips and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their, eye, their ears heavy, and, their, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed." Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. 
do not dare fall asleep in Isaiah 6 until you read that last phrase. The holy seed is its stump. Hmm. Well, we are delighted again to, to think about this chapter. You'll recall that Isaiah's task before the Lord is to pronounce judgment upon Judah, the southern kingdom ultimately of God. His context is that he is the prophet of God for some 40 years, beginning roughly uh, about the time of the fall of the northern kingdom. Uh, he is a prophet uh, in Judah in the south. Judah uh, has the benefit of uh, wonderful kings as well as some rogues. There's some bad guys in the midst of the good guys. If you'll recall back in chapter 1, verse 1, he identifies the length of time and the context in which he prophesied. He was the prophet during the days of four kings, and they are listed there, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Three of those four are good men. One, Ahaz, is anything but. I would remind you that uh, Isaiah's role is to pronounce judgment because uh, the kings of Israel have made alliances with people who are not the people of God, and they are therefore bringing shame upon God. And we illustrate that vividly, it seems to me, here in chapter 6 and verse 1. So I've just divided this chapter into three parts. I think this will be helpful for us to understand it. I would tell you that if you're going to really lean into a, a good and rich study in, in Isaiah, this one would bear much fruit, chapter 6. But I want you to note three things. First, the holiness of God. And then secondly, I want you to note the, the sinfulness of God's people, the sinfulness of the people of God. And then thirdly, the judgment of hardness and the promise of a remnant. The judgment of hardness and the promise of a remnant. So here's where he's going to go. I just want to give you a kind of a view from above for a moment. He's going to talk about how God is holy and how God is, is unlike anyone else, anything else. There is a singular description for God, and that is that he is holy, holy, holy. We shall see that momentarily. And then he contrasts that with the people that God has called unto himself, his own people, Judah, his people. He has, he has called these people, blessed these people, and yet these people are sinful. And we see that personified in the life of Isaiah. He tells us he is a man of unclean lips, and he dwells in the midst of people like him. In other words, oh no, in light of God, this is who we are, and this is a problem in light of him. And then thirdly, he's going to say, and as a result of your sinfulness and your unwillingness to turn, I'm going to continue to allow you to turn away from me, and I'm going to bring judgment on you, and that judgment is in the form of hardness. That's an interesting word in the Scripture. He uses it here. He's going to use it again throughout the New Testament, as we shall see. Uh, a judgment of hardness. Now, I want to uh, jump ahead and momentarily make a couple of comments. Many people talk to me over the years, and they say, why is it that so many people don't believe? We live with this clear truth that makes perfect sense to us, that we love, and why is it that so many people don't believe? And why is it 
that there seems to be, and it seems to be because it is, but there seems to be a growing discontent with God, disregard for God. Why is it that there are more and more people who are blind to the things of God? Why is that increasing in our day? Well, I don't know specifically about our day, except that the Bible is clear. First Timothy tells us that in the last days, there will be a hardening. So we're going to see evidence of that. God announces in Isaiah's day, the 8th century B.C., as we're going to see in a moment in the New Testament, Jesus says, and that day has a second fulfillment, and it is now in the first century, the time of Jesus' arrival. And then the Apostle Paul tells us as he writes to Timothy, and there is yet a future hardening coming when people will turn away from God. When is that? Don't know. Nobody knows that day for sure. Maybe that day is today. But I will say this. We need to spend far less time determining their problem and much more time focusing on our problem. If the focus of your life is on them and they and not on you and yours, you've missed the point. So let's consider these verses together. You'll note uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, we know exactly when he died, by the way, uh, 739 B.C. Uh, Isaiah tells us that he, he had a vision, and it's a, a unique vision, nothing like it in all the Bible. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train, the modern translations retranslate that word train to mean him essentially god is in the throne room and the hem of his garment fills the room years ago i preached a sermon in another uh, context uh, on, on this passage and the point that i made then was that the hem of the garment touched the baseboard in every direction in other words there was room in the throne room for god and no one else. The hem of his garment filled the temple. So he has this vision, and God is sitting on this great throne, and he is dominant in the room. The train or hem of his robe fills the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. That's an interesting word. You say, well, I've heard about them. Well, if you have, you've read Isaiah 6 before, because it's the only place in the Bible where the seraphim are mentioned. The Hebrew word seraph is a word that means fire. We don't know a lot about these creatures. We don't know how many of them specifically. There's at least two because one's talking to another, but we don't know exactly whether there's two or four or six or 24 or any number you want to imagine. But there's at least two. And the scripture says they, they have six wings. Very strange creatures. Six wings. Two to cover their face, probably a reference to humility. Two to cover his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is typical language in the throne room of God. Give me an illustration. Turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 4. 
in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 4. These creatures here in Revelation chapter 4 are not specifically identified as seraphim, but they have a similar description. And you'll note they have a similar conversation. Look at verse 6, about the middle of the verse. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, day and night, and they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. These creatures in the throne room of Revelation 4 are very similar to the vision of Isaiah, of the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. It matters not whether they are the exact same creatures. It matters, rather, that we understand that in the throne room of God, there is room for one mantra. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Interesting, most of us don't really know what the word host means. Most of us associate it with angels because we have been taught through uh, Christmas pageants, not through the Bible, but through Christmas pageants, that there is an angelic choir that gathers around the shepherds to announce the coming of the Messiah in Luke chapter 2. In fact, Luke never uses the word choir, and he never uses the word sing. But it would ruin a couple of really good Christmas songs if we let the truth get in the way of poetry. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, it says that the angels or the host of God say. So think in terms of an army who chants. That's probably a better descriptor of what's going on in Luke chapter 2. And that's probably what's going on here in the throne room of God the seraphim are gathered above God and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Interesting, this thrice repetition of the word holy, uh, we understand that. It's difficult for us to uh, get our mind around perfect holiness, but let me illustrate it this way. If you're going to uh, describe something and you repeat your affirmation three times, you would agree that that means that's a very special descriptor. Yesterday, I had dessert. Somebody asked me, how is it? And I said, it's good. And I used an inflection in my voice to suggest it's really good, good. Because when you say it's good, you don't really mean it's, it's good. I learned a long time ago that when Susan asked me, how do I look? I would never use the word fine. You look fine. Bad, bad, bad. That's, that's husband 101. Never say fine. Never, that doesn't mean anything. But if you say mighty fine, really fine, gloriously fine, or if you said fine, 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 right? You with me? Now the word holy. If I could bring you back from that moment of silliness. The word holy means set apart unto God. 
It means there's nothing like it. It means exclusive. It means the one and only. In other words, the word holy is the use of the word, is a superlative word as opposed to a comparative word. Comparative means you're comparing two things and you're saying, well, this one's better. But the superlative means you're comparing two things and you say, this one's best. This is the best you could ever, 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 ever have. And the word holy is a word that connotes the superlative, the best. What do you have when you have the best three times? You don't have just good, good, good. You have best, best, best. You have holy, holy, holy. The seraphim gather around the throne of God and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And they say it three times because their understanding is that there is no one like God. No one like God. Now, why is that important? Because you contrast that with the people of God. You contrast that with Judah, for instance, of the 8th century B.C., some 750 years before Christ. You contrast the holiness of God with Judah. God ordained that his people would be set apart, that they would be holy unto him. And the Old Testament is replete with teachings again and again. I want you to not be like the people of the world. Don't marry outside of the faith. Don't trade in the same way outside of the faith. Don't sell your land outside of the faith. Don't give these circumstances. Don't cast, to use a New Testament phrase, don't cast pearls before swine. Don't do that. Don't desecrate your unique, special, privileged, holy position. Don't compromise your life. Don't join with them. Don't be one of the boys. Is that indicative of the church today, I would ask? Do you find that the church has assimilated into the culture or that the church is content to stand off from the culture, not arrogantly, but rather to say our approach, our ambition, our hope, our goal, our measuring stick is not what the world says is appropriate? The world will say A and B and C, we might reject all three. Because those things do not coincide with what it means to be holy unto God. And God is not merely one of the boys, nor will he have his people become one of the boys. This is not a democracy. This is worship. And we use the word, it's become trite. It means nothing to us. And yet... Isaiah's vision is clear that as he enters the throne room of God, he is completely slain. He is waylaid. He cannot abide it. He knows that he's just entered into perfect holiness. And he sees these creatures, and these creatures communicate that this is unique. I've never seen anything like this. I don't, know any, I don't have any experience to compare this to. I would ask you, in your own life, how unique, how special, how treasured is your own relationship with God? I would suggest it's very, very easy to become one of the boys. To think like the world, to act like the world, to talk like the world. Very easy. And it was so easy in Judah's day, 750 years before Christ, that they just decide better to go along than to stand out.
I will tell you, there's an indictment, in my judgment at least, against the contemporary church. It is that we have gone along rather than stood out. What would happen in your life? What would happen in my life? What would happen in our church's life? What would happen in our community's life? If we determined that holiness was job one. It'd be a lot of be a lot of change. Be a lot of stuff thrown in the trash. Maybe a lot of stuff cleaned out. I want to suggest to you that maybe it's time. Maybe it's time for us to get serious about true holiness. But there's a contrast uh, in this chapter, and that is the contrast of the holiness of God with the sinfulness of the people of God. You'll note Isaiah is clear here. Uh, verse 5, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. By the way, the word lost in a New Testament context means unregenerate or un an unbeliever. That is clearly not what he means. He does not mean he is unregenerate. So don't take your New Testament syntax and impose it on your Old Testament. This is the prophet of God. He is not unregenerate. Rather, he is lost. He is, he is disconnected. He is a ship without a rudder. He doesn't know what to do. He's completely confused. He's completely overwhelmed. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. Isn't that the way it is? When absolute light fills a room, I haven't cued Eric, I'm not going to, but if, if we turned the lights in here, I know every time I talk about lighting, folks chase rabbits, and I don't want to chase rabbits, but roughly the lights in here are at about 40 or 50% of capacity right now. Now, there's a few more lights up here on me because we're live streaming to the world. But the lights out there are 40, 50% of capacity. If we turn them on, you would see dirt. We don't want you to see dirt. Or you might see a smudge, or you might see a tear in a fabric on the chair, or you might, you might see lint on your family's shirt or coat or something. Yeah, who knows? You'd, you'd see, the point is you would see whatever's there. Because when you're in the company of full light, nothing is hidden. You know what's not hidden when you come in the company of God? Nothing. Nothing's not hidden. Bad grammar, but good theology. Everything's open. Everything's clear. Your, your righteousness is exposed and your sinfulness is exposed. And you'll note that the prophet of God was fully transparent. Woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the king. Mine eyes have seen the king. I've seen pure holiness. I've seen pure light, and I've been exposed for who I really am. This is the nature of the Word of God. It is designed to expose our hypocrisy. It is designed to, his, to expose our, our, our suggestion that we're okay 
That somehow we can collect garbage and collect garbage and collect garbage and somehow we no longer stink. In fact, we do. We do. One thing the pandemic has taught us is that you can't wash your hands nearly enough. I've never had so much alcohol on my hands in the last 12 months, in any 12-month period in, in my life. In fact, I would dare say I probably washed my hands more in the last 12 months than I have in the last 12 years. But I've had COVID now, so I stopped washing my hands. It's a joke. It's a joke. Well, not, not completely untrue, but not quite as devoted as I once was. I've resorted to my evil ways, eating dirt again. But I will tell you, friend, when you're in the company of the king, you see what's on. You see what's on your hands. You see what's on your heart. You see what's on your eyes. You see what's on your tongue. And you'll note, Isaiah is not pulling any punches. I'm unclean, and the people I run with, they're unclean. Oh, no, woe is me. The holiness of God doesn't have any good news. But that's where we make a mistake, because you'll know what happens. That's not the end of this story. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. The word atone means to, to remove the stain, or if you will, to cover over the stain. Your sin is covered over. Your sin is removed. What, what is Isaiah experiencing here? He's experiencing forgiveness. He is experiencing restoration. How do we know this? Because the very next verse, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go? And Isaiah felt appropriate to say, I'll go. Well, if, you know, if he's crippled by the forgiveness of verse 6, verse 7, then he's not going anywhere with God in verse 8. So we know by virtue of verse 8 that he's experienced forgiveness in verse 6 and verse 7. Here's the question. Have you experienced equal forgiveness? Do you understand the mercy of God's forgiveness for us as sinners the sinfulness of God's people is illustrated in Isaiah's own confession. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people just like me. But God in his grace, God in his kindness, God in his mercy, God in his tender loving kindness, his hesed, loving kindness, God sends forgiveness. Don't miss the imagery here. This seraphim creature flies and has in his hand a burning coal from the altar. The altar. Now, what, what is the significance of the altar? Well, again, you'll recall that in the book of Leviticus, God gives instructions about a series of offerings and uh, the, the, if you will, the weightier of those offerings, they're all weighty. I don't mean to suggest that they are not, but the weightier of those offerings all involve burning. You take an animal, let's assume for the sake of illustration, you take a, a, a burnt offering, which is a sin offering. You've sinned and you come and you offer a sacrifice to God. You go to the altar, or rather you go to the priest with a bull. Leviticus 1 tells you bring a bull 
And if you don't have the money for a bull, then you bring a lesser animal. But you bring a bull without spot or blemish, without defect. So you can't bring your three-legged bull. You have to bring four legs. You have to bring this bull, and that bull is sacrificed. And then because he is a burnt offering, the, 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 the pieces of that bull, the, the entrails and the bones and the sinew and ligaments and all of that, the pieces of that bull are burned. They're placed on the altar, and the altar is this enormous, let's call it a vat. It's, it's, it's different than a kettle, it's square, but it's, it's like a vat, and it's full of fire, and they throw these pieces of animal on that altar, and they are burned. The point is that the burning cleanses. You offered this sacrifice for your sin, and because of the burning of that animal, you are atoned for. You are cleansed. Then on the Day of Atonement, the one day a year when the high priest would take the blood of animals into the Holy of Holies, and he would cast that blood upon the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and he would cry out to God, forgive us as a nation. Again, the point of that is that the pieces of that animal, sands of the blood, are burned in that altar. Here you have seraphim. Seraphim, the, the Hebrew word seraph means burning. You have these burning representatives. You have these burning creatures. You have these creatures who know the purpose of fire and who use fire. You, you have seraphim, and they bring an altar, a piece of the altar, and they touch the lips of Isaiah, and they say, as a result of your interaction with God, the requirement of God, the, 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 if you will, the forgiveness of God is now offered to you. Here's the point. If you come and you do business with God on God's terms, you will be forgiven. Woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Got a cure for that. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Got a cure for that. Ultimately, it's not go and clean up your life. It's not some moral lesson. You just need to be better. You just need to get a better dose of friends. You just need to stop talking like that. You need to stop being so angry, so, so judgmental, or so hypocritical, or whatever. That's not the message. The message is you need to come to God and do business with God on God's terms. And God's terms involve interacting with the altar. You got to have some of the altar. You got to go to the altar. You don't go to the altar, you're not forgiven. You don't go to the altar, you're not clean. You don't go to the altar, you're under the judgment. You've got to go to the altar. Or in Isaiah's case, have the altar come to you. Or in my case, have the altar come to me. We're going to talk about it next week. But you know what happens in Isaiah after chapter 7? He says, I'm going to bring the altar. This is my words, not the Bible's words. But he said, I'm going to bring the altar to you. I'm going to bring you a child born of a virgin. He's going to be the altar. Now we're in Isaiah chapter 6, and that's next week's sermon. 
It's really good. I sure like to tell you now. But the altar's got to come to you. You got to come to the altar. If you don't do business with the altar of God, you're undone. But in the midst of that, I want you to notice what he says, concluding this chapter quickly. He announces a judgment of hardness and the promise of a remnant. He says in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And he said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say this. You, I want you to go and say this to my people. Remember, he's, he's preaching to a group some 750 years before Christ. And he's saying, say this to them. Say them, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy. To blind their eyes, lest they see, lest they hear and understand and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long should I go and preach and proclaim this message? And he says, until the cities are trash. Until the cities lie in waste. In other words, this is the, the announcement of judgment of hardness. He's saying, Isaiah, you're going to be my vessel for going to Judah and announcing judgment upon Judah. You're going to bring this message, and it is a hard, hard, hard message. You will not be popular. You will not be invited to dinner parties. You will, you will lose relationships. You will be ostracized, cast out. But I want you to go, and I want you to pronounce these judgments because this is, in fact, what must happen. I am going to bring about a judgment of hardness. Now, this happens. We know that history is clear that, in fact, Judah eventually is brought into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes and takes them off and deports them. And we would never know of Daniel if it weren't for the Babylonian captivity. We'd never know of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego if it weren't for the Babylonian captivity. All of those things are yet future. There's going to be a hardness, and God is going to bring desolation, and it is a complete desolation. Notice this, verse 13. And though a tenth remain, though, though 90% of it is destroyed, it will be burned again. We're going for the last little piece of it. We're going to burn it down. Burn it down. A judgment of hardness. But that's not the last phrase. The last phrase is the holy seed is its stump. Most of us are familiar with burned out landscapes. We've, if we've not walked in the midst of a fire, we have seen ample pictures or seen others walk through the midst of fire or burned landscape. And you'll note that when a fire comes, it burns everything. It doesn't matter whether it's valuable or whether it's of no consequence whatsoever. It will burn and it will burn to the ground. And it will essentially, depending on how hot it is, burn ultimately to ash. But what a fire does not do is it does not burn the roots. Hmm. God says, I'm going to bring a judgment of hardness on my people, and you're going to be the one to announce it. And my people are going to go increasingly cold and cold and cold and cold and cold. The mystery of the activity of God is a mystery. 
many, 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 many people have tried to explain the mystery of God and written books and so forth. I won't wade into that mess, but I will tell you that his announcing here is that God will indeed bring a seed. He'll bring an offspring. This is the last verse of Isaiah 6. And who shows up in Isaiah 7? Yeah, God's going to send a seed, all right. The only hope for Judah is that they turn to the seed, and the only hope for you is that you do the same. It's an announcement of hardness. If I had time, and I clearly don't, I would remind you of these verses in Matthew 13. Jesus said these words. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. In other words, it seems that the people of God are professional ignorers of God. So it's true 800 years before Christ, it's true in the time of Christ, and it's true today. The judgment of hardness. God will not labor. God will not strive forever. God will eventually remove his hand and he will remove his mercies. But God is not finished even in doing that because God promises again and again that he will provide a remnant. Hear these words in Acts 28. The Apostle Paul, the last chapter of the book of Acts, verse 23 when they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he says, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, and there it is again. Do you know this very paragraph is quoted six times in the New Testament? Matthew quotes it. Luke quotes it. John quotes it. Paul alludes to it three times. Apparently, Isaiah chapter 6, the second half, not the first half of the chapter, is among the most quoted paragraphs in all of the Bible in the New Testament. God promises a judgment of hardening. But that's not the end. Because the message that Paul preached and the message that Jesus clearly preached and the message that Isaiah is even preaching is God has a seed. God is going to burn it down, but he is not going to burn the roots. And from the stump of the tree of Jesse, God will bring forth a child. 
And that child will be Messiah. That child will be Emmanuel. That child will be God with us. God will not leave us or forsake us. He will care for us and he will come with us. And we shall go with him and we shall be his people. The purpose of the burning, the purpose of the judgment, the purpose of the hardening is to clear a path, to purge, to to prune those who are not his. And to burn it all down, this superstructure that looks like religion, and bring us back to the one true test of those who are followers of God. And that is that they understand that He is holy and that absent our interaction with His holy altar made personable in the person of Jesus Christ, we are doomed. We are damned. We must clearly look to God. We must find our hope in God. We must be saved from the fire. Let me conclude with this passage from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. These are familiar words. For you have, regarding those who are believers in Jesus, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. You recall that is the experience of Israel in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai, giving the Ten Commandments. You have not come to that mountain You have not come to Mount Sinai. You've not come into a mountain of horror. Indeed, verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm afraid. I tremble with fear. But, key word, but, but, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And where is that sprinkled blood sprinkled? On the altar. On the altar. And who has access to the altar? In the Old Testament, only one person, the high priest, then only one time a day, one time of the year, on the Day of Atonement. But in the New Testament, Jesus becomes the high priest, not after the order of the Old Testament, but rather the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 7. And he enters into the heavenly places, and there the veil of the temple is rent in two. We are now wide open into the altar of God. And who makes that possible? Jesus. You see, friend, the only reason we are not destroyed is because we've been to the altar. If you haven't been to the altar, then you've missed the point. God in his tender mercies and God in his great love has brought his son to you that you might be saved, that you might be rescued, And that you might have an appointment, not in the earthly Jerusalem, but in the heavenly one. Because there is an array of angels in festal gathering, gathered in the throne room of God. And there is a gathering of saints who have gone before us, gathered in the throne room of God. And there is the Son who brought the altar to us, 
gathered in the throne room of God. And because of that, the seed of Jesse, the seed from the stump of the burned out Israel lives. And he lives. He lives. He lives for us. I hope you know him. And I hope you're trusting in him. And I hope you'll return to God and let him purge and sear and cleanse and forgive your sin. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would be gracious to us. We are your children. We love you so. We want desperately, Father, to be followers of Christ in a way that honors you. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. <laughs> Indeed, you are, Lord. Help us not to ignore it. Oh, God, awaken us. Please, awaken us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.